Hello and welcome to the GovPod interview series. I'm your host, Nicholas Lloyd Cusick. Today in the program, we're joined by author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert. Since 1999, Elizabeth has been a staff writer for The New Yorker, where she's written several seminal pieces on climate change and the environment, including her three-part series, The Climate of Man, which won multiple awards, including the 2006 National Magazine Award for Public Interest. Elizabeth's most recent book, The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History, explores the impact of human activity on global biodiversity and was awarded the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. Now, I got to say to our listeners, you know, it really was an excellent read. So if the Pulitzer Prize wasn't enough to convince you, you know, hopefully my recommendation will be. So thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth. It's an honor and a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to begin by bringing up the Living Planet Report published by the World Wildlife Fund recently. One of the quotes from that report that's making headlines is that the authors have observed an average of 60% decline in size for a wide range of animal populations around the world between 1970 and 2014 with the tropics in South and Central America being hit especially hard. As you pointed out in your book, the reality is that we're the first generation to understand the extent of our impact on nature, while also probably being the last that can really do anything about it. So in some cases, for many species of amphibian or bat, for example, it's already too late. And it seems that all the time the situation is accelerating faster than scientists and science communicators, never mind policymakers, can keep up with it. Uh, at the same time, in many countries, there also seems to be this growing distrust of science, and in some cases, this is extended to the media as well. Uh, this, of course, is combined with climate change denialism at the highest levels of government in the United States. And, and so as someone who's been engaged in detailing the urgency for climate action for a long time now, what do you think the biggest challenge is in getting the message out and really getting through to people? Well, I think right now... You know, as you and I are speaking, that one of the biggest challenges is simply there's there's so much going on. There's just such a an onslaught of news. Um, that World Wildlife uh, Fund report that you mentioned, which I you know I I, I read about as well. Um, you know, that's just part of this that that's huge, right? What could be huger? We've lost you know sixty percent um, of, of of these populations. It's not of it's not sixty percent of the species, but sixty percent of the you know, popu- yeah. populations um, will just be one bit of news in, you know, in this news cycle that will contain, you know, mass shootings and um, also, you know, also just a lot of, you know, my friends, you know, Facebook, you know, um, photos from their vacation and, and just everything that's, that's barraging people uh, with, you know, what we'll call information, how's that? So I think that one of the, one of the super big challenges of our, of our time, and this goes for any important piece of information, is just saturation. You know, just everyone has so much stuff coming at them. Now that, that's almost benign compared, you know, then, then we have to add in misinformation. And, you know, once you do all that, it, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So what could a, uh, you know, in your experience as, a, as an active journalist, what kind of things do you think about when you're, when you're constructing stories, when you're covering things, uh, you know, with the oversaturation in mind? Well, um, <laughs> that is a good mm-hmm. question. I mean, I, I still am a, a journalist who works in print and, and um, pretty, pretty long, long form print, you know, which is sort of so I, I sometimes I do uh, 
feel akin to, you know, the dinosaurs here, basically, in many ways. Um, but I, I try to think about... I try to think about bringing my readers to a part of the world that they have not been in and trying to make, trying to f figure out ways uh, to get them to, yeah, to think about things that are not necessarily part of this uh, immediate onslaught of news. But, um, and, and that's sort of a, that's a luxury that I have because I work for, you know, a weekly and not a, you know, not something that's just trying to follow the news second by second. Um, so a lot of times I work on things for many months, you know, before they appear. But, mm -hmm. but basically I, I, you know, it's, it's very simple formula. I try to tell an interesting story, you know, now, of course that's easier said than done. Naturally. Yeah. So, I mean, I, relating that to kind of, I guess, my student experience, you know, I'm part of a master of public policy program and one of the core aspirational goals of many of these programs around the world is to help equip students with a, you know, a powerful, persuasive voice in, to, to advocate for progressive policy change and things like that. And of course, that's an enormous problem in many fronts, including climate change and environmental policy. So what advice might you give uh, the creators, the administrators of these programs, and when they're developing curricula, what kind of experiences and perspectives should students have? And I guess maybe another way to frame this is, you know, if you were to... Um, you know, taking the current situation around media and communication, if you were to run a course in policy communication, what kind of things would you would you bring into that course? Well, I think that one of the um, one of the challenges in, and it's probably always been a challenge in the policy world, which is, you know, I, I do want to issue the caveat that that's not my world. You know, I mm -hmm. definitely am a journalist. I'm not a policy maker, but I think that. Uh, policy makers have always understood that storytelling is very important. Um, and, you know, you and I, before we began this, we were talking about, for example, our experiences on the Great Barrier Reef. So getting people to understand, you know, what's at stake, right, in policy, um, have some visceral, visual, emotional uh, connection to that, I think is really key. So that is where... Um, I do think that, you know, as I say, narrative um, and policy come together. What is it that we're trying to accomplish? I think, unfortunately, policymakers, like uh, scientists, often speak in jargon. They speak in their own language that does not connect uh, with people where they live. So I guess my, if I were designing a, a, a policy class, I might have a section on you know, how might we tell the story so that that person who doesn't think they're interested in this policy and doesn't know the acronyms uh, would be drawn in? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, um, you know, this this goes back to the, actually the other episode that we've already recorded for this podcast. We we're talking about populism and nationalism. One of the things that these parties often get right is relating to people very closely. And that's one of the most things, the most powerful, you know, aspects of their, well, their appeal. And it's one of the most difficult things to actually to, to, to combat, right? And so on that point, pivoting a bit to current events. So Brazilians recently elected uh, Jair Bolsonaro to be their next president, uh, which has a many environmentalists concerned. Uh, so amongst other things, Bolsonaro supports you know, opening existing reserves in the Amazon to, to mining development and the persecution of environmental activists and NGOs. And as we all know, the Amazon rainforest is, of course, famous for its biodiversity and more recently also famous for its, the amount of carbon it, it you know, absorbs from the atmosphere. Um, 
And so and Bolsonaro has also suggested he actually might remove uh, Brazil from the Paris Climate Agreement, which, again, you mentioned in your talk, it seems, you know, a couple of years out that it's, it's kind of coming unraveled in many important ways. And so I guess my question to you is, in a country like Brazil, which Reporters Without Borders is also uh, calls one of Latin America's most violent countries for journalists, how can the international community and international journalists like yourself help Brazilian journalists speak up about climate change and, and keep their voice strong in the face of this persecution? Um, I think that's that's a really good question. And I, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, people who are out there doing, you know, brave and dangerous work. Um, I don't think that it's it's hard for us, you know, people who don't speak Portuguese, we can't, you know, I would say subscribe, but, you know, the English-speaking world isn't going to subscribe to Portuguese language news. Um, there, there probably should be uh, funding, really, honestly, for, you know, for people to do projects, uh, that might not, you know, get done otherwise, and that is something that certainly, um, you know, the non-Brazilians um, could could do. But you know, the day-to-day -day dangers of being out there. Wow, I don't know. Hiring armed guards is really it's really scary, and it's a very scary time. And I'm sure that. Um, I'm sure that a lot of Brazilians are very scared, though a lot of Brazilians obviously voted for Bolsonaro. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you mentioned funding for projects that might not get done otherwise. What kind of projects do you mean by that? Well, there there are all sorts of, and this is true even, you know, this is true in the States now, there's all sorts of, um, there's a sense that, uh, and this, in, in the U.S., I guess this is more because of the economics of journalism are so bad right now, that there are a lot of important stories that might take, you know, a year or to write that aren't getting funded. And so um, there are there is some, you know, foundation money and, and various groups that have put together, um, you know, some funding streams for people to take a long time and then uh, to do reporting. And that might be something to think about in terms of, of the Brazilian media. Now, then at the end of the day, you still need somewhere to put that story. But increasingly, because so much journalism is online, Anyway, you know, you don't necessarily even need a, a newspaper or a TV station to disseminate it. You could do that, you know, almost directly, you know, through, through the web. And actually, that brings me to another point. In one of your articles, you examined private philanthropies, uh, highlighting the lack of governmental oversight and the fact that taxpayers are indirectly subsidizing, you know, a lot of these organizations' activities since donations to them are tax deductible and the support these philanthropies give is, is largely tax-free. Um, so that's an understandable concern uh, that these groups represent an increasing chunk of expenditure in public goods and welfare that are, are more or less completely outside of the democratic system. Um, and the activity of private philanthropies in settings where government is unwilling to take leadership role in climate action, for example, uh, like in the States or, or Brazil in this case, um, is just, you know, there's one example of when limited state control might actually be a good thing for these philanthropies. So that kind of brought me to thinking about, you know, what kind of regulation in terms of independent uh, philanthropies or you know, be private benefactors, what kind of regulation would uh, maintain some sense of accountability without stifling too much the potential for good to be done? Well, I think that, um, you know, once again, I am not, that's, um, I, I don't want to claim to be an expert on, you know, tax policy and 
Um, I think that the points that people would make, though, so, some people would make the point, the, the argument, I should say, that the, these, a lot of these philanthropies, you know, they should not be getting tax deductions. If you want to use your money to um, support X cause or the other or X university or the other, you know, great, do it. But that necess- that is a tr- that's your own choice. That's not necessarily um, a choice that should be supported in, as you as you say, it's in effect being supported by public money by through lost tax revenue. Um, now, some people would stop short of that and argue that you know we shouldn't get rid of the tax deductions for a lot of these activities, but we really should demand much greater uh, transparency. And one of the things that's happened in the U.S. I don't know if it's happening anywhere else is there are increasing numbers of vehicles for people to donate a lot of money mm-hmm. um, that are really hard to trace. And we should not be acceding to that as a society. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, another pivot. Uh, it's been about four years or so since the Sixth Extinction was published, uh, which would seem like a microscopic blip in, in, <laughs> in terms of the timeline of your book. But also, you know, mentioned in your book is the, 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 the blistering pace at which these things are progressing and also the time lag between research and the actual, you know, the, the horizon of events in the real world. Um, so combining that with a seemingly kind of constant release of bleak reports and, you know, academic papers, it makes it all really hard to keep up with for everybody. Uh, and I'm, so I guess my question is, you know, what's changed in, in the world since your book? You know, what, if you could add, you know, release another edition today, what kind of things might be added onto it? Well, actually, you know, unfortunately, as, as you suggest, it's only, you know, there's only been four more years of information and, you know, let's just say it hasn't contradicted anything in the book. Um, on the contrary, there have been some really important um, and big studies in the interim that I would definitely add. There was, there was a study um, out of Germany, I guess, about a year or so ago that looked at insect populations crashing. Uh, there was just a study also on insects out of Puerto Rico uh, that found insect populations crashing, and with them lizard population crashing because the lizards rely on the insects for food. Um, so you know, every week practically brings some new major report that unfortunately would fit right in uh, with the theme of the sixth extinction. Um, so one last question, actually, I guess, on the theme of other articles, other breaking news or <laughs> books, I always like to ask guests, you know, now, of course, if anyone wants to learn more about the, the, the sixth extinction uh, and the biodiversity crisis that we're kind of facing today in the world, I highly recommend you go pick up the sixth extinction. It's a wonderful read. Um, but could you recommend a, a, another, you know, uh, series of articles or a particular book that people could kind of uh, look to to learn a bit more and broaden their perspective on the kind of things we've been mon- talking about today? Well, a, a lot of people are, are writing about um, this this concept that in, of the Anthropocene, that we're entering a new you know geological epoch, which is sort of the um, implicit theme of my book, but some, a lot of people are, are writing um, whole books about this topic. So, for example, there's uh, a book I would recommend, it's it's one of those, you know, a very short introduction to, it's a very mm. short introduction to the Anthropocene, if you're interested in that sort of concept and why people um, feel that uh, this is um, a legitimate concept, and I think it makes a very compelling case for that. 
Um, and so another book that takes up this topic um, very directly and I think does a good job is called The Human Planet. It's recently out from Yale University Press. Um, so those are, those are two very recent books um, on the Anthropocene that I could recommend. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today in the program. It's been a real pleasure and a real honor as well to have you on. Uh, that's it for today's episode. I'm Nicholas Lloyd-Cusick. See you next time. Mm-hmm.